Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. A slight departure from the norm. Three guests, though, are the almost regulation, two segments. We'll hear from the energy analyst Jamie Webster on why European natural gas prices have mostly returned to Earth after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then Carrie Leiterson and Ron Kamenkow will make the case for nationalizing the railroads. First, energy. Just after Russia invaded Ukraine, Europe went into an energy panic. Reflecting its heavy reliance on Russian natural gas imports, prices soared across the continent. Prices, which had averaged about twice U.S. levels, or just below, in the years before the invasion, soared to about seven times. There were widespread predictions of business failures and people freezing in their houses. The worst didn't happen. Prices fell back. They're still about twice what they were before the war, but that's a lot less than the sevenfold increase between 2021 and the August 2022 peak. What happened? Why did prices recede? And what are the effects of still elevated prices on European households and businesses? What's happening with Russian gas now, and what has the impact of sanctions been on the country? What's the effect on carbon emissions and the transition to a cleaner energy future? And what about the rest of the world? Germans can pay, but can Bangladeshis? Here to answer those questions is Jamie Webster. He was last and behind the news in, my God, 2012 to discuss the boom in U.S. oil and gas production. Now that boom is helping keep Europe in supplies of LNG, liquefied natural gas, that is. He's an energy analyst with the Boston Consulting Group based in their Seattle office. Jamie Webster. Everyone thought gas prices were going to go through the roof and stay there. Uh, Instead, they soared and fell back. They're at a level higher than they were before the invasion. Uh, What happened? European gas prices, as you said, did go up quite a bit. I think they popped out close to 300 euros a megawatt hour for your listeners, for comparison, that would be like if uh, gasoline prices in this country went up to around $45 a gallon. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, so that's that kind of gives you a, a sense. So they come back down. They are now, I think I was just looking at it, around 50 uh, euros a megawatt hour. But that is still, that is like gasoline prices in the U.S. being at like $7.50 a gallon. So not 45 but still, that's really quite high. Um and, you know, compared to kind of what they were used to before. And so, you know, it's kind of moved from, as you can imagine, the discussions of prices going up, prices going down to like all hands on deck, even with this higher prices. But the reason why they, one, went up so high and two, why they've come down so much is they went up high, one, because, I mean, we were in uncharted territory and there was a lot of uncertainty regarding what was going to come next. Uh, also, obviously, there were some traders that were speculating on it. Uh, there was a push to try to boost natural gas storage levels as, as quickly as possible to as, as high as possible. The reason why the prices have come down is basically Europe has, through a combination of smart policies, but also luck, prices have come down quite a bit. And And so those are things like it's been a relatively warm winter. They've had a recent cold snap, but it's been a relatively warm winter. They've been able to bring their demand down, you know, in some countries upwards of 40, 50%, but as a, as a total block, probably around 23, 24%. The goal was 15%. So that's a huge savings. And part of that is because those high prices that we talked about earlier, natural gas storage levels are still quite high. I mean, they're, they're high at the sort of levels that you would expect to see at the end of winter or even, you know, once they're at very, very, still quite high um, levels. They've also had some luck last year with China's COVID policy, which caused China to not bring in, in as much LNG. And so Europe was able to land a lot more LNG. And then most recently, they've had some good luck that some of the French nuclear capacity has come back. What about the impacts on households and uh, businesses? Um how severe and how much do they vary by country? Uh, so it varies quite a bit by country. So like Germany was quite hard hit. Partly um, its previous energy strategy was one of interdependence. Effectively, the view was if we go all in with Russia, Russia will need our money 
and we will need their gas and everything will go well. Also, Germany has is a very industrialized country. And so they have a lot of industry that was previously dependent on quite low natural gas prices. And so they've been hit the worst. So you've seen some real reductions in their industrial demand. Uh, and we've seen some reductions uh, on the household side. So household, it's a little bit hard to really get a good sense of how much has fallen off because of structural factors versus cyclical factors. Generally speaking, as you can imagine, like here in the U.S., natural gas demand in households generally goes up quite a bit more in the wintertime because we're trying to heat our homes uh, versus industrials are a bit more flat. They're a little bit uh, winter peaking, but more uh, flat. So the real impact has been volumetrically has been on the household side. But in terms of the economic impact, it is really hitting industry, particularly in Germany. And there's a real focus on making sure that they that this, you know, that the continent can still compete going forward, depending on where natural gas prices are. I've heard some stories of German industry like BASF trying to relocate operations outside of Germany. Uh, how much is there to that? Yeah, so BASF announced that they were going to be moving some of their operations outside of Germany to include China. Some of that was already announced, but obviously there is pressure on a lot of companies to try to figure out. We saw companies taking a variety of, of different uh, strategies anywhere from we're going to reduce shifts, we're going to try to do it when it's a bit cheaper, we're going to try to use other fuel types. So some of them were, were looking at using oil uh, when prices were really, really high, just shutting down for a short period of time or trying to move those activities to other countries. Where is the Russian gas going now? So the Russian gas is going a few different places. One, it's still coming a bit into Europe. It's down around 76%, but some of it is still coming into Europe. And then some of it is actually still coming into Europe, but via LNG. So they're, they're taking the LNG and shipping it around and bringing it into Europe. And then there is some volume, probably not much, but there is some volume of Russian LNG that is going to other countries, effectively getting repackaged and then sent back to Europe with a unknown place of where it's going. There has been a bit of a push on boosting some of the exports uh, to China, but similar why you know, China wasn't needing a lot of natural gas last year because of its COVID zero policy, and because much of the, the pipelines that go there are already full. So they're working on a, a new pipeline right now, but it has gone up a bit. And then some of it is they're just using it more internally. There have been some events where some data has suggested uh, that there may have been uh, some methane uh, leakage, which would indicate that basically they were burning off some of the gas if they couldn't find a home for it. Now, it seems that the Russians are not suffering financially as much from sanctions and, and other um, shunning of Russian exports as uh, was initially thought. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? There was a push and a real thought that you know Russia would really suffer quite a bit. So one thing to keep in mind, because there was a view that, oh, well, they're not going to be sending the gas, and so they're going to be in a really tight bind. But before this, oil exports for Russia were about three to four times, depending on where prices were, the revenues they would get from natural gas. So it hasn't had as much of an impact. I know I've read a number of different things and talked to a, a bunch of different people in terms of that it doesn't seem to be as bad as some of the expectations. But I think also we were in such uncharted territory that there was a lot of rhetoric that was kind of to the extreme. Anything from, you know, prices in Europe were going to go through the roof and then stay there. Russia was going to collapse in just a couple of months. And there was actually a bit more resilience uh, within the system on all sorts of measures. And keep in mind, you know, the U.S. has been putting sanctions on Iran since 1979. And Russia is pretty close with Iran, and Iran is quite adept at dealing with sanctions and getting around sanctions. It's over 40 years, and, and Iran has not yet collapsed. No, not yet. Not yet. Yeah. So, But definitely has, has impacted them and has, has restrained some of their growth. It hasn't brought about the sort of regime change. I'll spare you the Seymour Hirsch questions, but um, what will the long-term effects of the Nord Stream sabotage be, if any? Nord Stream 2 technically is still there and it's ready to go. It just, you know, we're right on the eve and uh, they just didn't get it going. So they could feasibly turn Nord Stream 2 on. The reality is that I think even if Russia, if there was some sort of detente or some sort of agreement that, hey, we're going to go ahead and 
start bringing more of our natural gas um, and start allowing more of it to flow into Europe. Europe itself has recognized the risk of being for some for some countries all in on Russia for natural gas. And so the long term strategy is going to be and is one that the Europeans are taking on board, which is the long term strategy is let's take this crisis and use it to accelerate our energy transition, but also make sure that we move away from Russian dependencies as quickly as possible. I mean, their plan within the first month or so was to bring down their natural gas imports of Russia by 66% uh, within a year or so, which at the time was viewed as like nigh on impossible. But in fact, it's been down 76%, but that is because the Russians are not sending that natural gas. So I think longer term, Russia is going to need to find new homes for its uh, natural gas to, uh, to go to. I'm speaking with the energy analyst, Jamie Webster of the Boston Consulting Group. How much of the European uh, supply is being furnished by U.S. LNG? European LNG shot upwards close to a third. And I would say that most of that came from Qatar and from the U.S. Some of it for, was from other countries. But without the U.S., Europe would be in a much, much more difficult situation. Their prices would be higher. They would have had a much more difficult time filling their natural gas storage levels to the levels that they were able to get to. It would have been a completely different picture. And I think it really speaks to the advantage of the U.S. You know, having this ability to not just develop our own energy security, but also having enough that we can actually export and bring energy security to other nations as we see fit. Now, you mentioned earlier that Europe was using this as uh, an excuse or, or an inspiration uh, to shift their energy transition to post-carbon. How much of that is rhetorical? Or are they actually taking real steps there? Uh, they're definitely taking uh, real steps. So part of it is because they're kind of incentivized. You know, they have a lot of incentive to, uh, to do that with uh, prices where they are. Some of it is the sorts of things that in the United States we wouldn't be big fans of. So turning off heat in public buildings things like that. But there's a whole bunch of strategies in terms of accelerating the production of renewable energy sources, anything from like re uh, replacing and, and moving out uh, gas boilers so that you move from gas boilers to, to some other form of heat. So there's a whole bunch of different measures that they're doing to try to accelerate themselves. Now, also a second thing that has happened, which is with the US implementing its the IRA, the concern was that, you know, Europe would actually fall behind. And there's a concern also, of course, about remaining competitive and making sure that you can actually still bring the, uh, the industries that you want and need uh, into, your, into your countries. But there's no doubt that there is within Europe a view that this will accelerate the energy transition. And you're certainly seeing that anecdotally where people are actually have figured out ways to reduce their natural gas demand. And these are things that are likely to, to stick. So sealing up leaks, um, all sorts of different things to try to bring down that demand and keep it down even after the prices go back down. But in the short term, it seems to uh, this uh, situation seems to have uh, boosted the status of fossil fuels, even coal. Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely both within Europe and broadly. This has, the, you know, as I said, a number of companies within Europe have used fuel oil when it made sense from a pricing standpoint. Europe also boosted its use of coal, and obviously it has suddenly wanted to flood in a bunch of LNG from the United States, whereas before it brought in a bit of LNG from the U.S., largely in, in Spain and Iberian Peninsula. But this just really accelerated, almost turned it into a highway between the two regions. But it also had a huge knock-on effect to the global south, which is, you know, some people call the developing world or previously the third world, but effectively that part of the world that is both impacted and needs energy in order to get GDP to grow, but also is impacted by climate change much more so than other countries. And so Pakistan effectively got priced out of the LNG market. And because of that, just I think it was last week or two weeks ago, the Pakistan energy minister announced plans that it would be boosting its coal-fired power capacity four times 
to 10.5 or so uh, gigawatts from its current 2.6 gigawatts. For your listeners in the U.S., a uh, uh, regular sizable coal plant that you might see in the Midwest or other places is usually about a half a gigawatt. So it's a lot of coal that they are uh, boosting. And, and basically, the, the idea is we can't depend on LNG for our national security, for our energy security. Uh, you have other countries, you know, India had a difficult time. Bangladesh had a difficult time uh, landing some some natural gas and LNG at various points. And so last year, you know, we had one of the biggest growth years for coal that globally that that we've ever had. And we surpassed the peak that previously the thought was the peak had happened in 2014 as China demand started to slacken off relative to a decline in demand starting here in, in the United States. Uh, you mentioned uh, that Chinese demand had eased because of COVID restrictions. Now that they've lifted those, is Chinese demand going to come back into the market? We're seeing a bit on the LNG side, so things will tighten up a bit. But current views is that they're probably not going to be leaning really heavily on LNG imports. They are certainly trying to boost their own internal production, which they've tried to do in the past, but they seem to have a program in place to do that. They're also in the short term boosting their coal production. So six months, eight months before this crisis, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, 2022, you know, there was already a significant uh, coal crisis. And so China has already been expanding its capacity and building its ability to build up pretty significant stockpiles of coal because it doesn't Power outages are generally not politically stable, and there's a recognition of that and a recognition that they want to um, want to avoid that. So there was very much a, an expansion of, of coal uh, within China. And then, of course, the question is just how much is China going to come back? Chinese citizens are very different from U.S. citizens. They have a much greater propensity to save than we do. And so the question is just how much of their pent-up money are they going to be spending uh, relative to what we saw in the West. Did they accumulate savings the way Americans did during the uh, the height of the pandemic? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, they, they accumulated quite sizable savings. Their savings have just been steadily going up, steadily going up. And so you, you did see this big uptick in accumulated savings. The difference is now the U.S. has, you know, almost spent almost all of that and has, you know, as well as, you know, you know credit card bills are, are up and all of that sort of stuff. But generally, China doesn't have as much of a social safety net. Um, and there is also a belief in making sure that you kind of take care of yourself, take care of your family, multiple generations of the family. It's a, it's a, a very different sort of culture. And so the question is going to be just how much they're going to be willing to spend on that and what sort of spending that is going to be. Because if it is spending on, say, trips and travel, that is very energy intensive. If it is spending on real estate, that is less energy intensive. Oh, and then finally, journalists can't avoid the uh, the crystal ball questions. Will this last? Winter is coming to a close. We're closer to the end of winter than the beginning, so weather will be uh, friendlier. But uh, will this confluence of events that has uh, made the crisis not as bad as it could have been, uh, will that continue? Nothing ever lasts when you're talking about energy, <laughs> Doug. Um, this crisis is still here. So every year, you know, for the next three years, this is something I'm really going to be very much focused on, is that every year Europe is going to need to rebuild its natural gas stocks for the upcoming winter. How well it's doing on that is going to be something that is going to be a focus of the market and uh, increasingly the general press, depending on how close it gets. So it's going to continue to be an issue for the next, at least the next three years. But it's also going to be a question of how quickly you can see natural gas production ramp up in other places here in the U.S. We just saw earlier this morning, natural gas prices go below $2, an MMBTU just, and they were at $8 back last August. And so there's going to be a lot of interest in using natural gas both here in the United States, but also exporting it out to these countries. So we got through the first brush of the crisis, but the crisis is not over and it still will require some diligence and some additional 
both luck, but also some some policies and letting some some of the market to uh, work for us to be able to get through and for the Europeans to be able to get through this crisis in the next couple of years. Many energy exporters are pretty unsavory regimes. So uh, will they shun uh, Russian gas forever? They're technically right now, is it isn't a restriction that they can't bring in Russian natural gas. Uh, it's more of a recognition of the risk. And also Russia is not sending it to them, notwithstanding the blown Nord Stream pipeline, uh, but they're just not sending that to them. Outside the base case, but something that would not surprise me is if in 12 months, Russian production and Russian exports of natural gas to Europe are actually have actually increased, and partly because of risk to Russia and economic risk and, and the desire to get that back, um, and also because it ends up being available. And so while Europe will want to try to keep its imports of Russian gas down. If they suddenly got an available tranche today, that would likely be grabbed up. That was the energy analyst Jamie Webster of the Boston Consulting Group. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Stereolab's 3D Melody from 1994. And now the railroads. The derailment of a freight train three weeks ago in East Palestine, Ohio, and the subsequent chemical fire have gotten a fair amount of coverage. But what hasn't been covered so carefully is the role of the industry's practices in producing the disaster. Understaffing, overwork, disregard of environmental protection and worker safety, running insanely long trains. These structural issues deserve close attention. The industry has shed almost a third of its workforce since 2015, but not because it's in financial trouble. Quite the opposite. It's massively profitable and has been showering its shareholders with buyback cash. It just wants more. It's an industry, as the cover story of the March issue of In These Times argues, that should be nationalized. For more, we're joined by the author of that story, Carrie Leiderson, and Ron Kamenkow, an organizer with Railroad Workers United. Carrie teaches journalism at Northwestern University, and aside from his RWU job, Ron is a locomotive engineer with 27 years of experience in the industry. Railroad Workers United was organized 15 years ago as an effort to bring together the industry's dozen or so unions, who have often been at odds with each other, sometimes to the point of trying to snuff out their rivals. That's the background for my opening question to Ron. Well, it's ironic, given how concentrated the industry is, that the workers are so divided. It is ironic. There was always powerful industrialists that were forming these sort of cartels behind the scenes. And many of the big rail carriers 100 years or more ago were owned by the Harriman, the Vanderbilts and so forth. So they were somewhat monopolized. But, you know, the government kept them broken up and, and refused to allow them to amalgamate. But, you know, in more recent years, all of the big class one railroads have now amalgamated down to basically six or seven, soon to probably be six, and largely the CSX, Norfolk Southern, BNSF, and Union Pacific are largely responsible for the movement of probably about 90% of the rail freight in the United States. So you're really down to four major biggies, but yet we still have 12 different unions. Even though there are four big uh, operators, um, going from point A to point B, there's often not a whole lot of choice between which uh, railroad you can use, is there? Well, exactly. There's two big ones in the east and two big ones in the west. And so for many, many shippers, they're pretty much captive in their own line of just a single railroad. And the rail carriers know that they can largely, if they like, provide really lousy service and they can jack up rates and, in fact, move less freight than they moved almost a generation ago, and still have record profits. 
I don't think of any other business that could pull that off. Yeah, this is not like basic industry in the late 1970s where they're beset by foreign competition and some operators are on the verge of extinction. This is a hugely profitable industry uh, that's crucial to the operation of just about everything. Well, exactly. It's um, it's an industry that is making record profits and has an operating ratio way lower than its quote, competition, the trucking industry, which I don't think has ever seen profits in the range that the railroad industry is making. You wonder, well, how is this possible? Well, we would postulate that the trucking industries don't have their own highways. It's sort of this uh, free and open access, and anybody uh, with a truck can enter the game, whereas the rail industry owns the rail lines. And so I think the easiest way for people to understand when we talk about public ownership of the railroads is to look at the highway system, which is publicly owned. But can you imagine if... J.B. Hunt owned Interstate 80 and Schneider owned Interstate 10 and so forth and so on, and then sort of had the ability to uh, set rates and control the the industry. The rail industry is like no other uh, in the transport sector in this country, whether you're talking about the airlines, the waterways, and so forth. We own the airports, we own the seaports, we own the inland waterways, we own the interstate highways and county roads and so forth and so on. Only the rail infrastructure is held privately. And in some ways, that's that's the root of many, many of our problems, I think, uh, on the railroad today. What was the role of the industry structure in the East Palestine, Ohio chemical disaster? The rail industry is extremely powerful and consistently lobbies against the implementation of various safety technology Uh, During the pandemic, they successfully lobbied the Federal Railroad Administration to discard about 18 longstanding rules and regulations that have governed inspections and air tests and training and all sorts of things. The idea being that like, oh, there's a pandemic, we could end up being very short staffed and the nation's freight has to be moved. It was incredibly opportunistic on their part to get the FRA Administrator Ron Batori who happened to just be a lifelong railroad CEO who was appointed to the position by Donald Trump. But to get Pattori to simply say, yes, you got it. And therefore, we don't need all these workers to take care of things like inspections and tests and so forth and so on. When in fact, it was the railroad industry itself who was really self-inflicting all of these wounds in its drive for profits and record low operating ratios was literally in the process of laying off furloughing people permanently during this period where they were crying the blues that they don't have enough staff to properly do the job. And so they need a more lax environment. Coming out of the pandemic, we find ourselves with largely short staffing in the crafts of car inspector, signal maintainer, track workers, track maintainers, diesel house mechanics and electricians, and engineers and conductors. And so in that kind of environment where you're that short-staffed and you're skimping on maintenance and you're skimping on inspections, it's amazing that something like the wreck at East Palestine hasn't happened sooner. We have certainly have had a number of train wrecks, but nothing on the order of what happened in East Palestine. But we see it as a canary in the coal mine. If things aren't turned around, there could be a much more serious wreck than East Palestine. And you say, how could it be more serious than that? Well, nobody got killed. But as we saw, for example, in Latin Megantic 10 years ago, dozens of people can be killed in a train derailment in the center of town. Our hope is to rectify the situation in the coming coming months and years. There's a lot of momentum out there, a lot of discontent, not just by railroad workers, but shippers, passengers, trackside communities. Uh, and the American public in general, I think, is looking for answers. And I believe our case is out there for all to see that the railroad is not being operated efficiently. It's not being operated safely. And legislation could potentially put it right. And what's it like working in the industry these days? It sounds fairly miserable. The magazine Labor Notes, we're close with these folks out of Detroit and New York. They did an article about a year ago, and that was actually the title of the article was, you know, the subtitle was Making a Good Job Miserable. I hired out with the railroad in 1996. When I hired out, the old heads, we call them, the older workers, 
they were starting to feel discontent with the changes that had come in the last 10 years or 15 years. And they saw that it was getting worse. But they told me in the old days, you would never mark off. You would come to work because you didn't want to miss the fun. The railroad was a very, very empowering job. There was a fair amount of union power. It was generally good wages and benefits. The working conditions were good. There was a lot of camaraderie, plenty of people in the field to do the job. And of course, when you retired, you'd have a good pension through railroad retirement. All of that's changed in the tenure of my job, 27 years, where most railroad workers today are very, very unhappy with their conditions of employment, very unhappy with the short staffing, the inability to have the proper tools that are properly maintained to do the job right, draconian attendance policies that don't give you adequate and necessary time off the job, chronic fatigue, harsh discipline, uh, being spied upon uh, routinely by lower level managers and, and discipline meted out liberally, people getting fired for minor infractions. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so many workers just don't see themselves retiring from the industry because they do not see that it's possible, like in the old days, to spend 30 or 40 years doing this. That's the voice of Ron Kamenkow of Railroad Workers United. We're also hearing from the journalist Carrie Leiderson. Carrie, there's a lot of history in your article. Let's, let's go over some of it. This is an industry that was founded in large part with gifts of government land. Their whole existence is dependent upon public generosity. Right, exactly. And that's uh, one of, you know, I don't know if anyone realistically thinks that the government can just take the tracks and the lands back. But, you know, it's one of the reasons that it's not a really uh, unreasonable, um, at least starting point for a discussion, because exactly they were given so much to begin with and profited massively off it, not, not only with the actual tracks, but with the other other things they've been able to use the land for. And they've been you know, prime villains in American corporate history for <laughs> almost since the beginning major targets of populist agitation, union organizing. What, what about their history as an industry? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting that, you know, there's um, actually in, the, in these times story, there's a great caricature from years past of one of the robber barons. I mean, railroads are sort of synonymous with the really horrible robber barons of the old days. And, you know, we know so much about the deaths and treatment of Chinese immigrant workers on building the rails and the taking of the land, what that did to indigenous people, um, the way that farmers, were abused by the railroads in the early days and the, the Granger Rebellion that came up against that. And then there's sort of, uh, you know, there was never like an end point where the railroads became good, but I mean, it really just seems like a, you know, a continuum throughout time, but that kind of uh, caricature-ish image dropped by the wayside. And, you know, people, a lot of people love railroads so much, including the, the workers, as Ron talked about. Um, so it's kind of interesting that even in these current days and, you know, the past decade or more where we've had um, really renewed class consciousness and Occupy and everything, um, railroads have at least until recently gotten a break when, you know, in a lot lot of ways, um, maybe it's less dramatic and totally obvious, but in a lot of ways, they're they're getting away with the you know the kinds of safety and and labor and um, just bucking their responsibilities, um, just like they always have been. And yet, until recently, they haven't been hold, held to account um, and haven't even enjoyed the same kind of public image or public scrutiny that that uh, we think of them having in the 1800s. Now, we've had a couple of brief experiences with uh, nationalization, uh, mostly in wartime. Talk about those. Yeah, I mean, I was um, I hadn't learned, known about this until Railroad Workers United uh, brought it up. But um, I'm sure most people have no idea that during World War One and also uh, after World War Two, the railroads actually were very briefly nationalized by Woodrow Wilson and then by FDR and Truman. And um, it actually went really well. And I was also... Um, intrigued to learn just the really many of uh, hundreds of industries and companies that were briefly nationalized, mostly during wartime, including coal mines and um, factories and really all, all manner of different industries. That was wildly popular with the workers. Um, in both cases, with the railroads being nationalized, there were big improvements in efficiency and in working conditions. Um, so it was a real success. It wasn't uh, intended to be permanent in either case, which you know is probably part of the reason that it was able to be done without you know much more massive backlash from the companies. Um, 
but the workers uh, had voted overwhelmingly to continue the nationalization the World War One era nationalization. And there was a plan that, again, Railroad Workers United are doing such great public education on this. They're the that's the way I first learned about it. And there's there's some writing out there, but not near enough about this plum plan that was proposed by a prominent attorney at the time that would have continued nationalization of the railroads and would have had them actually governed by a board of stakeholders, including workers and representatives of the general public. So really a fantastic idea that had a lot of widespread support from different sectors, but uh, not surprisingly was, was crushed by industry and wasn't passed. But this had actually been in introduced in, in Congress, you know, the, so all this goes to show that the concept of nationalization really is not as far-fetched as it might sound on the surface. We also had, uh, if not nationalization, uh, some pretty strict regulation of the industry until uh, the Carter years. And with Jimmy Carter in his last days, uh, we shouldn't get too misty-eyed about him. <laughs> he deregulated railroads and many other uh, transportation uh, modes as well. What, what happened after deregulation? The Staggers Act of 1980 did a lot to deregulate the industry. And I think one thing that's really notable and, and I would like to understand better and is important to focus on, um, so they were incredibly deregulated. And I, I one of my main jobs is writing about energy. So I think it's really interesting to compare it to the electric utilities sector, which has tons of its own problems, um, far from a, you know, a great example to hold up, but uh, has a lot of similarities um, to railroads and is, you know, for the most part privately run, but they're regulated monopolies that are subject to um, a lot more government oversight and a lot more avenues for public participation than railroads are, especially post-Staggers um, Act 1980 deregulation. And then I guess to, to come back to what I would like people to focus on more is the fact that even the amount of regulation that still does exist for railroads um, has been kind of toothless. Um, there's still approval needed for mergers and for different actions that railroads take. Um, so even the amount of regulatory power that the government did have after deregulation has been just not used. You know, for the most part, railroads have um, gotten what they wanted from the, the Surface Transportation Board. And just within the past year, and especially since the derailment and the, the lead up to the potential strike, the administration and Judge have really talked a tougher game on railroads, but what's actually going to come of that remains to be seen. And then, of course, if the administration changes, um, could back, be back to very little enforcement, even of the regulatory powers that still exist, not to mention the fact that those were gutted by the 1980 legislation. The allegedly pro-labor Biden administration has not really distinguished itself uh, when it comes to rail labor, has it? Ron might want to answer that one. I think the, the quick thing I'd like to underscore is, you know, all the workers I talked to were really disappointed, not surprisingly, um, in the Biden administration forcing the deal through. But maybe Ron wants to talk more about that. I am no great fan of Joe Biden by any means. But in his defense, we have had Democrat and Republican administrations alike since the first great railroad strike in 1877. And it doesn't seem to matter if you're Republican or Democrat, you basically intervene on behalf of the railroad carriers. And, you know, this is to be expected. I don't think you can go to too many other countries in the world where you see presidents of the republic openly siding with the workforce. It's just sort of not the nature of the way business is, is conducted in bourgeois, democratic, capitalist society, whatever you choose to call it. The state comes to the aid and assistance of big business. And of course, it's always cloaked up in terms of, you know, I'm doing this for the society as a whole. We're doing this to save the economy, etc., etc. I mean, Harry Truman, a real big friend of labor during the big strike wave, actually threatened to draft every railroad worker into the armed forces uh, so he could have total control of them and break the strike and court-martial them if they were to wildcat. And so, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of different methods uh, that have been used. Of course, back in the good old days, they just simply sicked the National Guard on the railroad strikers and shot them. Biden is carrying on a sort of a proud and rotten tradition of high government officials who simply will not tolerate a railroad strike. I will say this, the thing that the Biden administration did do that was kind of new and is a little frightening is that he did not wait for the strike to happen. He did not allow railroad workers the opportunity 
to at least flex their muscle, display their solidarity for all the world to see, and actually carry out a strike. In the past, railroad workers have gone on strike. They're usually ordered back to work within hours or at most days. Biden wasn't going to take any chance 10 days before the strike was billed to take place, called on Congress to pass legislation mandating that a strike not take place at all. And that is a is a new development, which is a little bit disconcerting because it sets a precedent for every Republican or Democratic president in the future to simply utilize this same preemptive measure. That's the voice of Ron Kamenkow of Railroad Workers United. We're also hearing from the journalist Carrie Leiderson. Okay, so let's talk some about what nationalization might look like. Are we talking about the entire industry? We're talking about the track. What are the various options? What might it look like? It seems like on the most basic level, uh, one option would be having the tracks publicly owned and then by nature, the government would be the the traffic controller and um, inherently have a lot more regulatory power over at the very least the scheduling and the running of trains on the tracks and hopefully by extension um, related to labor as well. Full nationalization um, would be the tracks as well as the actual shipping of the freight and the passenger rail, which, of course, is already essentially publicly owned with Amtrak. Um, So, you know, that would be the full-on nationalization and probably pretty uh, unrealistic anytime soon, given that that would mean, you know, dissolving or radically changing these, these massively profitable privately owned companies, but um, the public ownership of the infrastructure, you know, of the tracks and switching equipment and rail yards and all that. And that is a lot, you know, in a lot of other countries, um, you do see that model where you have private operators, but you have the um, public owning the infrastructure and, you know, essentially um, regulating and scheduling the infrastructure. Um, But I'm sure Ron has thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, if we look around the world, what we do see is that most all rail systems of any size are held publicly. And then to that question, what does that mean? In many cases, the railroad was owned lock, stock and barrel publicly, like take British Rail in the UK. It was nationalized after the Second World War and was held publicly for, oh, probably over 40 years or so, maybe even 45 years. And then was privatized, but now there's calls for renationalization. But it wasn't completely privatized. And you can look at France, I believe, as another example. The rail industry was nationalized, and they basically hold not just the infrastructure, but own the trains and operate the trains as well. But a number of European countries have gone with a model of, okay, we own the infrastructure publicly, And then they have franchises and they franchise it out. So you may have an operator in the north, an operator in the south, or a competition where various trains from different companies uh, will utilize the same track. So a train from company A could go by and the next train going by, freight or passenger, is company B. And those companies, of course, are held privately. What model that we would end up going with, of course, is a huge political question that's really beyond the scope of what Railroad Workers United is calling for. Individuals in RWAU, different conductors, engineers, and members of the other crafts, you know, have our individual opinions about what needs to be done. I will say this, at minimum, to free ourselves from some of the massive restrictions that we have in this country in terms of investing and building up an expanded railroad system, we need to own the infrastructure at minimum. And then some folks would say, well, that's all you need. But there's a big argument that that's not all you need because we deregulated the trucking industry and deregulated the airline industry and all of this stuff, you know, 40 years ago. And so, yeah, the skies are not privately owned. The highways are not privately owned. Well, what we see in the in the trucking industry has become a disaster uh, for all kinds of reasons I won't go into. And the job of the truck driver has now become relatively miserable. The majority of truck driving work back before deregulation was unionized Teamster drivers with better wages, benefits, and working conditions. But the trucking industry today is probably down to about 15% union, 
and it's a basket case. And so if we nationalized the railroad infrastructure, but allowed all of these different competing rail companies, mom and pop rail company goes into business, well, to make it and survive in the industry, they, they cut costs. And that means cutting labor. That means cutting corners on safety. And this is exactly what happened in the UK after the rail industry was partially privatized in the 90s. There was a series of spectacular train wrecks and loss of life due to this exact phenomenon. And so I, for one, would like to see a rail industry that was completely publicly controlled and like the Plum Plan postulated with maximum feasible participation of the workers themselves. And so you would have a board of directors that is actually composed of shippers and citizens, government appointees, uh, and railroad workers. And I think we would have a, a railroad system that would run much, much better. It would certainly be way more democratic, and we would not be facing the safety issues that we are today. What about re-regulation? Is that uh, deficient, short of um, the full goal? Would it be an improvement? Well, it does sound like, you know, there's a move for re-regulation already underway, but, and I mean, it seems like it certainly couldn't hurt. And a, a number of the, uh, some of the shipping representatives and other experts I talked to um, said, you know, it's a given, we need massively more regulation. Um, but, you know, people who just don't really believe nationalization is possible um, are calling for more regulation. But then it's like, what does that regulation look like? And, you know, as I mentioned, there's our regulation on the books, which really haven't been enforced. So um, who's to say, you know, new regulation will will help much. Um, so it really just depends what that regulation actually entails. And um, a lot of uh, calls for more regulation would actually be to enhance competition, um, which could be a good thing. But then as, as Ron alluded to also, at least for, for workers and for safety, more competition isn't, you know, that could almost lead us in the opposite direction. So, so much of any you know, amount of regulation would be what do those regulations actually look like and and in how much good faith are they actually carried out and who has a seat at the table drafting those regulations and making sure that they're enforced. Politically, it seems like making the maximum demand is a good place to start anyway. <laughs> yeah, to be clear, even though Railroad Workers United has debated, discussed this for more than a decade, and finally, in the current context, decided that, you know, we've had enough. There's really no alternative at this point for us. That said, it doesn't mean that we put all of our eggs in that basket and just, you know, on a wing and a prayer, hope that one day we can nationalize the industry and that'll be the solution of all of our problems. So it definitely is a two-pronged approach. Right now, in terms of, quote, regulation, we definitely need regulations on the length of freight trains. There's the potential that we could get a bill passed, possibly, in the in, the, in this session of Congress. One would hope there's lots of Republicans who are jumping on the bandwagon here, so maybe we could actually have a bipartisan piece of legislation to limit train length. We just had a coal train derail yesterday in Nebraska, dumped 31 cars of coal. Uh, and the train was uh, 16,000 uh, feet long, well over three miles long. Tonnage that I just cannot imagine pulling down a railroad track safely. So, yeah, we need that kind of regulation. We need regulation on simple things like uh, hotbox detectors, which apparently, unbeknown, unknown to most of us, uh, is that those things are not regulated at all. And the industry is free to space them where they want to space them along the right of way and free to maintain them. Uh, and inspect them uh, how they see fit. So there's another specific example that right now, in the wake of the East Palestine wreck, you would think there could be a consensus in Congress to regulate hot box uh, equipment uh, detectors. Uh, and then things like uh, there's no regulation on how long it takes to inspect a train at its initial terminal. And the railroad, which used to common wisdom was three minutes per car, unilaterally just decided within a very short space of time, I believe the entire industry is on board. Now it's about 60 seconds to 90 seconds to inspect a car. So they've dropped the amount of time to do inspections of trains before they leave their initial terminal by 50%. And so, you know, we need to scientifically come to these basic conclusions. What does it take to inspect a car? And if it's three minutes, 
then we need a damn federal regulation that says it's three minutes. End of story. If you need to hire another two or three or 5,000 car inspectors that have all lost their jobs in recent years, then so be it. That's what we need to do. So while we push for regulations and rules to govern the rail industry in the here and now, ultimately, we believe that a solution to many of these and other problems uh, would be through nationalization. But we're not going to be sitting around on our hands waiting for that glorious day. We got our work cut out for us right now. That was the voice of Ron Kamenkow, locomotive engineer and an organizer with Railroad Workers United. We heard from him and journalist Carrie Leiderson, author of a cover story in In These Times on nationalizing the railroads. Late in the interview, Ron talked about hot box detectors, which are sensors in the track that can detect overheating axle bearings. In its preliminary finding, the National Transportation Safety Board said on Thursday morning that an overheated bearing was a likely cause of the Ohio derailment. The board said they'd be looking at Norfolk Southern's maintenance and inspection practices and their use of those detectors. Judging from the accident, their use might not have met the highest standards. Interestingly, Jennifer Homendy, head of the National Transportation Safety Board, said at a press conference when they released the report, this was 100% preventable. We call these things accidents. There is no accident. Every single event that we investigate is preventable. Let's see how much more we hear, and more importantly, how much is actually done to prevent more wrecks like this. Obviously, nationalizing the railroads would be a real reach, given American political reality. But the problem with such a move isn't financial. The market capitalization, the total value of their stock outstanding, is around $360 billion. That's a lot of money, but it's about five months' worth of military spending or three weeks of overall federal spending. We could easily afford it. But, you know, this is America, and we don't do that sort of thing. That's it for me, Doug Henneman. Let's go out with this, some more Stereo Lab, this surreal chemist. Till next week, bye. Oh, 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 oh.